You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. try and imagine something. This is going to be very difficult for you to do, but try, if you will, for just a few minutes to put yourself in sort of an imaginary situation. You're a Christian parent, and you have children, obviously, and you want to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord and pass on to those children your Christian commitment, your Christian profession, the ability to walk with Christ and to stand for Christ. But you live in a period of time in which you know that your children, if they embrace your faith, are going to be persecuted for it. And your children likely will die because they're Christians. Imagine that. You and I don't even have to, you and I don't even have to think about dealing with a situation like that, do we? Or do we? Raising my children? And I really raise my children under the assumption that they're going to live in a free country in which persecution of the Christian church is unheard of and not a reality. I mean, that's how I raise my children day to day, is really underneath that assumption. I assume that they're going to grow up in a free country and that my grandchildren will grow up in a free country and that the church in our day and age will not experience persecution. You know, it was not like that for the early believers. In the first 300 years of church history, from the year 33 A.D. to the year 313 A.D., there was not a generation of Christians that did not know persecution. Not a single generation. There were ten different institutionalized, government-run, government-endorsed, government-promoted persecutions of Christians in those 300 years. Every 25 to 30 years, Christians had to go back underground for a period of time. Because every emperor from the time of Nero in 63 A.D. to the time of Constantine in 313 A.D., every emperor did his best to squash the Christian church. Every emperor launched what he considered to be his attempt to finally once and for all silence Christians. And it got worse with every consecutive persecution. It got more intense. Until finally in the year 313 A.D., Constantine issued the Edict of Toleration in which he essentially made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. For 300 years, that's what Christians endured. And you know, for 300 years, persecution of Christians had the exact opposite effect of what you would expect. It was intended to squash Christianity. And you know what in reality happened? Christianity grew when it was persecuted. The emperors, when they persecuted the Christian church, intended to scare people away from joining that movement. That's not what happened. The movement increased in numbers. It was intended to silence Christians, but they just got louder under persecution. It was intended to keep people from joining Christianity, but you know what people found? There's something attractive about a Savior worth dying for. And people were drawn to them. Until by the year 300 A.D., Christianity had grown and prospered and advanced in such a scope and to such a degree 
that it was literally the dominant religious force of the Roman Empire, and Constantine realized that it was to his political advantage to become a Christian, so he had a an epiphany, a conversion of sorts. I don't know if it was genuine or not, but he supposedly was converted to Christianity and made issued the Edict of Toleration, made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and that was in 313 A.D. Then, for the next 1,200 years, the Christian church enjoyed peace, influence, prosperity, and power like you cannot imagine. No persecution. No suffering. No underground church. For 1,200 years, the church had the ability to practice its religion freely and openly and without fear of persecution or without fear of suffering. And for those 1,200 years, you know what we refer to the majority of those years as? The Dark Ages. The Dark Ages. The light of the Gospel was effectively extinguished for nearly 1,200 years, not by persecution, but by peace. If there's anything I learned from church history, it's this. Suffering and persecution are good for the church. And I don't want the church running the government. And I don't want the government running the church. In fact, I have learned that it is better for the church for us to be in the minority and hold the minority view and to be seen as a minority position and to be castigated and hated and ridiculed and disliked is better for us than for us to be at peace and prosperity and in power. Because I'm convinced that if we could get the church completely in control of the government, which is what Constantine began to do, the government would eventually control the church and pretty soon you would have a church-state relationship and it would usher us into another dark ages. Persecution is a good thing. Imagine what it would be like to raise your child in an environment where you knew that at the most you would have 25 years before they would be running for their lives simply because they're believers. And that your child would likely, if they were going to embrace your Christian faith, they would likely be thrown to the lions, dipped in tar and lit on fire to light somebody's garden parties. They would be beheaded. They would be sewed up into the skins of dead animals and ravaged by wild dogs. Imagine what it would be like to live in an environment like that. You would think that persecution would silence the church. From a human perspective, you would think that persecution would disunify the church. That when you get ready to stomp on Christians, they would scatter. But that's not what happens. In fact, persecution serves to spread the church. So much so that it's been likened to trying to put out a fire by stomping on the fire or kicking the coals and scattering them. What inevitably happens is the coals scatter and they start a bunch of other little fires that eventually spread. And you can stomp on those and scatter those ashes and they start a whole bunch more little fires that eventually spread. That's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9. When the church is persecuted under Saul of Tarsus, what happens? They spread out. They run, and they just take the message with them, and it advances. Now Luke gives us sort of a status report at the end of chapter 4 as to what the church was like after it had faced this initial persecution. We've covered Acts chapter 3, the healing of the beggar, Peter's being cast into prison and being arrested. 
We've covered Acts chapter 4 where Peter gives his defense to the Sanhedrin and they release him because they cannot punish him. They find no grounds upon which to punish him. So they release Peter and John. They go back to their companions and they have this prayer meeting that literally shakes the place where they're in where they pray for power and for boldness. And God answers that. And Luke says they begin to speak the Word with all the more boldness. The exact opposite result that the Sanhedrin intended when they said, do not speak or preach in this name anymore. They thought that would be enough to silence them. And it's not. So what do we see about the early church after it faced its initial persecution? We get a status report in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 35. And we're going to read these verses once again. And then we're going to notice three things that marked this early church. And this is on the other side of the opposition. They've been threatened. They have been warned. Peter and John have spent a night in prison. They know that there are worse things ahead of them. And still they have committed their cause to God. And verse 32, Luke says, "...the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. I want you to notice three things that mark this early church. The first thing is unity. This is not the first time that unity of the church is mentioned in the book of Acts. <clears throat> Excuse me. In fact, Luke follows a pattern in these early chapters, and here's the pattern. There's a major event that happens that is significant. And after that, Luke reports that the church is unified. And then there is another major event, and then a report that the church was unified. Then another major event, and the report that the church was unified. What are the major events? The ascension of the Lord. He's gone. He's left now. It's before Pentecost. You would expect the disciples to all go back to their businesses or to scatter or just to sort of fan out. They don't. Luke says in chapter 1 that they were continually devoting themselves with one mind to prayer. What's the next major event? Pentecost. Afterwards, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, they continued with one mind in the temple, devoting themselves to prayer and to worship. Now the third major event has happened. Opposition has come against the church. They've been threatened. They've been in jail. They know the worst is yet to come. And what does Luke say? They were of one mind and one heart. One heart and one soul. There was unity that existed in the early church. Now we've covered this in times past. It was quite a while ago. So I want to clarify what we mean when we talk about unity amongst believers. Unity is not an outward conformity. It doesn't mean that all of us dress alike, act alike, talk alike, um, uh, do everything alike, the same. That's not what unity is. It's not an outward conformity. Second, unity is not something that you and I create. You and I cannot create unity amongst Christians. Unity is something that exists as a reality. It is something that is true of the entire body of Christ. From all the whole church age, we are one in Christ. We are one group of believers, one spiritual priesthood, one household of God, one nation of priests, one people of God existing under one Lord, all there by one baptism in one faith. That is something that is true. 
Now you may look at the church and say it's all divided, there are different denominations, we can't agree about the mode of baptism or the timing of the rapture, or we cannot agree as to whether or not Scripture teaches a dispensational outlook of time or a covenantal outlook of time. You may look at the church and say, we can't agree on anything. That's not true. We can't agree on this. We are sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we can agree on the authority and inspiration of the Scriptures, and you and I can agree that there is one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We can agree about all of that. Unity exists. It's a reality. It's not something that you and I create. It's something that the Spirit of God creates. He created it in eternity past when we were all baptized into one body, and that is Christ. And there is unity in the church. Another misconception about unity is before you can have it, you have to get rid of doctrine. Now, I cover this because there's such a hue and cry coming from every segment of society and every corner of the church about unity that we have to create it, we have to model it, we have to show it, we have to demonstrate it, we have to promote it. And the only way, they say, that you can promote unity is to do away with everything that divides. Don't teach doctrine. Don't preach the truth. Don't teach the Scriptures. Don't say anything that will offend or condemn. Just don't take a stand on any issue that might be controversial because that divides people. So do away with theology and do away with doctrine. I disagree with that. I believe that we are unified around the truth, not apart from the truth. The truth has to be there for us to all gather around and to unify around. And the more you teach the truth, and the more you preach the truth, and the more you emphasize doctrine, the more unity you have. And it doesn't work just to push aside doctrine and say, well, now we can all get together. Does doctrine divide us? Does doctrine divide? You know, most certainly it does. Divides the sheep from the goats. Divides the wheat from the tares. It divides true believers from false believers. It divides the true church from the apostate church. And it divides the wolves from the sheep. That's good division. That's good separation. That's why you have to emphasize doctrine. Because it does divide. It does separate the sheep from the goats and the wheats from the tares. It does allow us to see who the true church is. Who the real believers are. Who it is that would gather here on a Sunday morning if it were going to cost them their lives. It would allow us to see that. Sure it divides. It's good division. You can't have unity apart from the truth. So you've got to preach the truth. And you've got to have the truth. And you've got to hold up the truth. And understand the truth. And teach it. And model it. And live it. And emphasize it. Doctrine and theology. Because those things unite Christians. That's the unity that exists, and it only existed because in the church, the church had a love for the Lord and for each other. And they were unified around the truth. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 2, it says they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, if the teaching of the apostles was divisive, the apostles wouldn't have taught, and they wouldn't have been devoted to anything. They just would have all got together and sung some feel-good songs and said, aren't we one? But they didn't do that. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And there was unity in the church. And that unity existed because there was a love for each other, a love for the Lord, and as they gathered around His truth and worshipped God and met each other's needs and set aside all of their selfishness and their pettiness, they came together around the truth and they were of one mind, Luke says. They didn't have all of their own little separate agendas. 
They did not have all of their own little ways of doing things. The church was not scattered out and broken up and everybody doing their own thing. They were around the truth, they loved the truth, and they were of one mind. Unity. That's what marked early Christians. The second thing that marked the early church, look in verse 33. They were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed anything as belonging to his own. We're going to get to that phrase in just a second. Luke really there is giving the expression at the end of verse 32, the expression of that unity. Nobody claimed that anything belonged to himself. There was a mindset where everybody viewed all of their possessions as really available to be used by the entire church. They didn't claim, this is mine, you can't have anything to do with that. And that's what love and that's what unity, that's how it expresses itself. Not in stinginess. Is you and I are stingy. I'm going to get to verse 33 in just a second. You and I are stingy because we don't love other people. I don't want to spend time with you. I'm stingy with my time because I don't love you enough to spend time with you. And it's because I don't love you that I don't spend time with you. If I love somebody, I sacrifice things in order to spend time with them. If I am do not love the brethren, I'm not going to exercise hospitality. I won't invite you into my home because I don't like to have you into my home. I don't like to share my home because I'm stingy. And I'm stingy because I don't love you. And I'm not of one heart and one mind with you. If I'm stingy with my resources, it's because I do not love the Lord and I do not love you. Otherwise, I would share my resources with you. You see that? There was a fervent love for the brethren that existed in the early church. So much so that they cultivated this radical mindset where they did not view it as my home, my car, my tools, my things, my possession, my time. It was all available to be used by whoever had that need. That was the mindset that existed. Second, I want you to notice that the church was marked by testimony. Verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Now, you would expect that the threats would have shut them up. You would expect that they've been threatened, they know that their lives potentially are on the line, that they would have been silenced. Maybe they would have said, you know, we'll continue to preach, but we'll do it behind closed doors. We're not going to go to the temple anymore because that caused us a lot of problems last time we did that. We're not going to go out into the streets anymore and do this. We'll just do it behind closed doors. And so we'll invite everybody into our services and there we'll preach where it's safe. That's not what they were doing. The apostles were giving powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now look what difference the Spirit of God makes. These are the same apostles, Peter and John, who just months earlier were running from the same high priest, Caiaphas and Annas. When asked, do you know him? Peter denied the Lord three times. And John sat back in the shadows and watched everything unfold. It was cowards and quiet and meek. And they were scattered. And now Luke says, the presence of the Spirit of God is there and they pray for boldness. And what are they doing? There's nothing Annas, there's nothing Caiaphas can say that will shut these men up. Because as Peter said, we must continue to speak about the things we've seen and heard. Look at the difference that the Spirit of God makes. That's the boldness that they had. And they weren't ashamed. And Luke says that they continued to give powerful testimony to the resurrection of Christ because it was the apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So Peter and John and Andrew could all say, we saw Him. We were there that morning. He rose. We felt Him. We handled Him. We saw Him. We listened to Him. He ate with us. So they were giving testimony to what they had seen and what they had heard. And that is that Christ was risen. And that's the message you and I have to proclaim. 
He died for sins and He rose again. And notice how central the resurrection of Christ is to their preaching. Have you noticed how it comes up in every chapter? In chapter 1 it's mentioned. Chapter 2 it's mentioned at Peter's sermon in Pentecost. Chapter 3, he's preaching to the crowd in the temple and he brings up the resurrection. Chapter 4, he's preaching to the Sanhedrin and he brings up the resurrection. And here it says they continued to give powerful testimony to what? The love of God? The goodness of God? The greatness of being part of a church family? No. Continued to give powerful testimony. Christ is risen. And without that, they have no church. Without that, they have no message. And they have no hope. They gave powerful testimony to the resurrection of Christ, of the Lord Jesus. And look what Luke says. Abundant grace was upon them all. I love that phrase. Abundant grace was upon them all. Do you know why they needed grace? Put yourself in their position. You know why they needed grace. The natural human instinct says to run. The natural human response when you're threatened or when somebody is antagonistic to your faith is to step back into the shadows and just be out of existence and to let everybody discuss that. How many times have you sat around a dinner table or been around co-workers or been at a family gathering where a religious or spiritual topic comes up in the midst of unbelievers and you be quiet? It's the natural human response. But Luke says they were giving powerful testimony and abundant grace was upon them. Why? Because they did what was right and they suffered for it And Peter says that gains favor in the sight of God. That gains God's blessing. And that gains God's grace. And the abundant grace was there. Now listen, you don't have to wonder if the grace of God will enable you to share your faith with your lost co-workers or family. You don't have to worry about that. Grace will not be available if you cower, capitulate, or compromise the gospel. Grace will not be available if you keep your mouth shut. Grace is only available when you open your mouth and speak. And tell people the truth. You're lost. You need a Savior. And if you don't trust Christ, you're going to spend eternity in hell. That's the message. So trust God for the abundant grace to give that message. And if you cower in unbelief, and if you're ashamed of the Gospel, there's no grace available for you. No grace whatsoever. Abundant grace comes upon those who will boldly give witness and testimony to the things that they've seen. They were a unified church. They were a testifying church. And third thing I want you to notice, they were a generous church. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Back in chapter 2, we saw that prior to the persecution, prior to the threatening of the apostles, that they were already selling their possessions and distributing to each as anybody might have need. They were a generous church. They grew up in a Jewish culture where it uh, gained them acceptance in the sight of God. They understood the requirements of the Old Testament law that they should share their possessions and that there should be not a needy person in the land. They understood all of that. And as a church steeped in that Judaism, the very first thing that they did, inspired by the Spirit of God, was to make sure that there was not a needy person in the church. There were no beggars. There was nobody who went wanting. There was nobody whose basic survival needs went unmet. No beggars. Nobody at the temple gate. Nobody who needed a handout. Everybody's needs were met. How? Verse 34. For all who are owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now before the persecution comes, Luke says the church was unified. What happened after the persecution? They were still unified. Before the persecution struck, 
the church was giving testimony to Christ. What happened after the persecution came? Giving testimony to Christ. Before the persecution struck, they were a generous church, giving to anybody who had need. What happened after the persecution came? Do you get the picture? You see what Luke is saying? Even in the midst of opposition, the church was still the church. They were still unified. They were still boldly preaching Christ. And they were still generous. The persecution didn't change anything. That was the way the church was. The church was still the church. The church still did what the church should have done. And whoever had tracts of houses or land would sell them and they would bring those proceeds and they would put them at the apostles' feet. That's simply a a legal jargon for a transaction. They would turn responsibility for that money over to the apostles. There were no elders in the church in that day. These are the early days. There, There was no such thing as an elder yet. There were no deacons in those days. And so as people brought them, they would bring them to the leaders of the church, the apostles, and give them to them because the apostles had a handle on who amongst those believers had needs and who didn't. And those apostles, under the guidance of the Spirit of God, would direct those resources as they needed to be directed. And that's how they did it. And what Luke is showing us here is that in those early days, the apostles had two responsibilities. One, they had the responsibility to teach and to preach. They were boldly giving testimony to the resurrection of Christ. And the church was devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. These men had the responsibility to preach, to teach, to disciple, to instruct, all of that in the faith. The second responsibility they had was to oversee the benevolent and the generosity ministry of the church. As people gave funds to the apostles, the apostles would distribute those to people within the body. Now you're going to see that these two responsibilities that they had very quickly led to problems in the church. Very quickly. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Because as we get to Acts chapter 6, the fact that they had all of those responsibilities almost brought a division in the early church when we get to Acts chapter 6. They had to teach and they had to oversee a benevolent ministry. Now they're teaching over 5,000 men. Because that's the last number we got. The church grew to be about 5,000 men. And then there's women and children on top of that. And then they have a benevolent ministry which would probably be tens of thousands of dollars for all of those Christians who would be in need that was turned over to them. So it's huge responsibility that exists upon these men's shoulders. So much so that it just brought the church to a crisis point in Acts chapter 6. And you'll see that when we get there. Now I want you to understand these verses here have been put into a mill and they've been ground down into powder and then they've been put into a vice and they've been cranked down on and they've squeezed, people have squeezed all kinds of false doctrine and bad practice out of these verses. This is not a passage that teaches Christian socialism or Christian communism. Um, when I arrived at Bible school, I actually had a friend who, he doesn't believe this anymore, I actually had a friend there who told me that socialism would work, but it would only work in a completely Christian environment like it did in the early church. Where the Spirit of God was present. This is This doesn't teach anything about socialism. There's nothing socialism or socialistic or communistic here. This was a completely voluntary action. Somebody in the church would say, I know somebody who has a need, and I've got seven cars. Me and my wife, we don't need seven cars. We'll sell five of them and give the proceeds to the church so that they can meet that person's need. And it would be a completely voluntary thing. Or somebody would say, I have a track of land that I haven't farmed on for a long period of time. I was hoping to build a summer home there. But you know what? We're probably not going to live long enough to retire and enjoy the summer home because we're all going to die from persecution. So we'll sell that track of land. We'll give it to the church to meet this need that we know exists. That's what was going on. There's nothing compulsory about this. 
There was at no time did the apostles ever say it's your responsibility to pool all of your resources, sell everything you have, go live in caves and give the money to the apostles so that they can distribute to the needy. At no time did they do that. It's never recorded that this happened in any other church in the New Testament. The only church that it's ever said to have done this is the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Why? This is the culture in which they grew up. That's what they did. That's what Jews did under the Old Testament law. They would meet everybody's needs. There were other churches who did the same thing. The Corinthians, for instance, sent an offering by the hand of Paul to the church in Jerusalem to meet their needs. The Philippians did the same thing, sent an offering to Paul to meet his to meet his personal needs and to share with the other saints. So this sharing was going on, but it was never compulsory. It's always the Spirit of God in the heart of a believer that raises them up to give. And that's what you have having in the early church. You have these men who were wealthy, and they saw their wealth, because they didn't consider anything as belonging just to themselves, they saw their wealth as a means to meet another need that they knew existed. And so they would bring those things, they would lay them at the apostles' feet, and the apostles would distribute to everybody as they had need. If you look down at chapter 5, verse 4, look at it for a second. This is the account of Ananias and Sapphira. After Ananias sells his tract of land, he keeps back some of the proceeds for himself, and he gives the rest to the apostles under the assumption or kind of implying to the apostles that he had handed over everything that he had got for the sale of that land. Verse 4, Peter says to Ananias, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Did it not remain your own, and after it was sold, was it not under your control? It's just completely compulsory, or uh, completely voluntary, not compulsory. While Ananias had that tract of land, it was his. But it was the radical mindset of the early church that what I have is not my own. I'm just going to give it away. It's not Christian socialism. It's not communism. It's not an excuse for communal living. So what do we do with this? Do we take Luke's words now and say, well, to apply this, I think that the entire church should sell all of their possessions and lay them at the elders' feet. Okay. No. I'm kidding. You don't do that. That's not what Luke is saying. He doesn't want us to all sell everything that we have and lay them at the leaders of the church's feet. What does he want us to do? He wants us to imitate the generosity and the spirit of the text, which is that when we see a need and that we have the means to meet that need, we would be used by God and available by God to do whatever it is that we have to do sell a track of land, work a few extra hours, give something, provide, bring somebody into our home, exercise hospitality, give something that we're not using to that individual. Selling land and selling houses is the most sacrificial form of giving. Do you understand that? It's more sacrificial than giving my income. Why? Because I have more income coming. It's coming in. That's why they call it income. And I can always basically count on income coming in. But when I have a physical asset like a piece of land or a a house that is mine, and I sell that and give away that money, I lose a physical asset that I probably cannot replace. And with that physical asset, I lose financial security in the end. What they're doing is the ultimate form of sacrifice. They are sacrificing in a way that is that is very unique because they're giving away something that they probably cannot replace. You can always replace money. You can always get more of that. These people are giving away something that maybe they inherited from their fathers and their grandfathers, something very valuable. So here's the question. The question is not, do I belong to a church or am I attending a church that looks like this? Because you see, that question places the responsibility on other people. It says, are other people living up to my expectations of what a church should be? 
So the question is not, does, does my church do this? The question is this, do I do this? Because if all of us do these things, then our whole church will be just like this, won't it? So it's not to expect the church, other people, to do this. It's to ask myself, am I practicing unity? Am I at one heart and one mind with the people of God with whom I meet? Are we all headed in the same direction, worshiping the same Lord, focused and unified around the truth? And second of all, am I a testifying Christian? Do I share my faith with my coworkers and my family and my unsaved friends? Am I telling other people about the Lord so that I can experience the abundant grace of God that comes when I open my mouth to speak as I ought? And third, am I generous with my time, with my house, with my resources, and with me as a person? Or am I stingy and keep back those things? Those are the questions we have to ask. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your for your wisdom and for Your Word and for what it teaches us about what marked the early church. And we know that these things were marks of the church only because these things were the marks of individual believers who themselves yielded themselves to You. We pray, God, that You would give to us the grace to apply these things in our lives. We pray that You would convict us where we are at odds with the unity of the Spirit, convict us where we are silent and ashamed of the Gospel, and convict us, Father, when we are not as generous as we ought to be in the giving and sharing of ourselves with others who have needs. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.